<clears throat> Excuse me. We're looking at first John chapter two, verse twenty eight. We're going to go through chapter three, verse three. Quick review. If you've been with us, this will be uh, this has been repeated ad nauseum. So you should be able to answer me quite a bit. There are four purposes that John had, or we should say the Holy Spirit had for writing this letter to us. And they're found explicitly in the text. Okay. I'm going to let you guys finish the sentence for me, and that'll show how how badly I've beaten it into you. It's good. The first purpose, John, first John, chapter one, verse four says that he writes this, that we might be filled with joy. joy. Chapter two, verse one, he writes this. The Holy Spirit writes this through John, that we might be free from sin, sin or a sneezes. First John, chapter two, verse twenty six he writes this that we might be able to fend off deception. Okay. And chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I write this that you might have a firm assurance of your salvation. Okay. You can look at all those verses and see how he lays that up. So four purposes for the book. Filled with joy, free from sin, fend off deception, and a firm assurance of our salvation. And the key to it all we have seen over and over again, and I think we're going to see it continually over and over again. The key to all of it is fellowship with God. Fellowship with the Father and the Son. You see that in just the first two verses of the whole book. That that which was from the beginning, he says, when he's speaking about Jesus, we've handled him, we've touched him, we have fellowship with him. And because we do, we want to invite you into that fellowship with him. Okay, the key to all of it, the key to being filled with joy, to being free from sin, to being able to fend off deception and to have that firm assurance is fellowship with the father and the son. This morning, as we've laid out that grid now, the text that we're going to look at really touches mainly on numbers two and numbers four. I think John is writing what we're going to read this morning because he wants us to be free from sin so that we can have assurance of our salvation when Jesus returns. And once again, the key to all of it is fellowship with God, fellowship with the father and the son. Look at verse 28. First John chapter two, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. Fellowship. Abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. In our text on Thursday, just a few verses before, John began to use, as we were reading, began to use phrases to remind us, guys, that Jesus could return any moment. Any minute he could return to gather his church. He could return before this teaching is over. That's right, 3 or 4 p.m. today. <laughs> Had a guy uh, this morning come up and say, I dreamed that you said it was going to be a really long message, and so me and Philip went and passed out uh, pillows. <clears throat> the long message might be prophecy, but you're not getting any pillows. Sorry. <laughs> Look, look at first John chapter two, verse 18, and you'll see what uh, I'm referring to. He says, little children in verse 18, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. Now, we're not going to reteach that. We taught that on Thursday, but you can get the CD or, or go online. 
But basically what he's getting at is, look, the fact that there are so many that oppose Christ. There are so many who call themselves Christians. They look like Christians, but they oppose the very things that Christ teaches means that we are in the last hour. It means that he could come back at any time. And if that was true, then back when John wrote this, like 90 A.D., it's even more true today. Just this last week, some of you are aware One more mainline church voted on whether to adhere to the Bible, to whether to to base their practice, their teaching on the Bible. We've seen over the last uh, generation, but specifically the last decade or the last few years, this mass exodus of fellow of from the fellowship of the true church. Matter of fact, John describes that. Look at verse 19 and you'll see. He's saying, look, there are so many who have left and they've they've shown that they don't belong to the true church. So John is saying to us this morning, guys, look around. It's the last hour. It's later than it's ever been. Jesus could come back for his church at any time. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse two and second Peter chapter three, verse 10, both say that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. How does a thief come? Secret. Um, If someone wants to rob your house, they don't call you and set an appointment. (laughs) Hey, I'm I'm robbing all the houses on your block this this week. Um, Can I pencil you in for Tuesday at 1130? (laughs) Matthew 24, Jesus himself says, look, when I return, it will be like a thief in the night. There will be no warning. That's a promise. He's promised that he will come as a thief in the night. And what that means for today is it's possible today. So knowing that, let me ask you, do you have firm assurance? Or are you excited or are you a little nervous? First John, chapter two, verse 28. And now little children abide in him that when he appears and it could be today. We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. That word appears. It's a very familiar word to those of you who have been with us for a while. In the Greek, it's phaneru, which is manifest. Some of you guys know where I'm going. My favorite illustration. How do you illustrate the word manifest? This Bible right here. It's been present in the room all along. Now it's not manifest. Now it is. See? Manifest. Okay. Now little children... Abide in him that when he manifests, when he appears, even though he's been present all along, when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So Jesus is always with us, right? He's always right there with you. But one day at an appointed time in history, poof, he will make himself manifest, visible. Are you worried that whatever you might be doing at that moment, you'll be doing in front of him? Now, it's always true. He's always, whatever you've done this last week, you have done in front of him. He's always present. But in that moment, you'll know that he's present. There may be some in the room that are already uncomfortable with that. That he's going to come as a thief in the night. Have any of you ever 
I'm, I'm going to confess to this. This is probably common to men. You ever been in that spot where you're like, oh, man, I hope he doesn't come now. Hope he doesn't come today. I sure hope he doesn't come while I'm yelling at my kids. Poof. Hey, Jesus. Man, I hope he doesn't come while I'm at that movie. Oh. Hope he doesn't come while I'm looking at that or listening to that. Hope he doesn't come while I'm listening to that joke or telling that joke. Hope he doesn't come while I'm hanging out with that person that he told me not to or avoiding the assignment that he gave to me or holding back forgiveness. Man, I hope he doesn't come when I'm obsessed with money or sex or popularity. Man, I hope he doesn't come after that, the, the fight with my wife. I think it's safe to say that all of us, if we had our druthers, wouldn't you prefer for him to come on a Sunday morning at 1010? And we're all got our hands up, right? But Jesus said, uh, when I come, I'm going to come as a thief in the night. So John says, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, that when, poof, he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. The word confidence, it means freedom of speech, literally. That's a freedom in speaking, an unreservedness in speech, where you don't have to guard what you say. It's to speak open, frankly, without concealment, without ambiguity or circumlocution. Big fancy word. It was actually a word used by the Romans. If you were on trial and you were considered innocent, they would say, would you have anything you'd like to say on your own behalf? If they didn't believe it, they wouldn't even give you the chance to say it. So this is freedom of speech. To put it in in our day, in our terms today, this is like the opposite of the stuttering, awkward response of the guilty. Poof. Oh, hey, Jesus. As, uh, it's, it's good to see you here. I'm, uh, I, was, I was just checking out the lust of the flesh, you know, to remember what you saved me out of. <laughs> hey, Jesus, it's good to see you. I was just knocking one back with my buddies. I, I, I was witnessing to them. He says, now, little children, abide in him that when he appears out of nowhere, we may have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. That word ashamed literally means to shrink back. The New Living Translation is probably the best one here. Listen to this. And now, dear children, continue to live in fellowship with Christ. Fellowship. Live in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. The word ashamed means to shrink back. You ever thought about what a pity that would be? The moment that all of the world waits for in history. Your king, your redeemer, the rescuer of your soul. The one who has called you friend. He appears. What a shame it would be to instead of having our arms stretched out ready without embarrassment to instead shrink back. Nobody wants that, right? So what do you do? 
Do you just try real hard to shape up? Do you burn the midnight oil? Do you keep your nose to the grindstone? Again, the key is fellowship with God. Because look at the beginning of verse 28. Little children abide in him. We've seen that word over and over again. Abide means to settle down, to sink in, to rest in. Little children foster that relationship with him. Just settle down in him. The admonition in verse 28 is not to work real hard to follow the rules, but to be diligent to foster the relationship. Focus is not to follow the rules, it's to foster the relationship that when he comes, you can say, Jesus, I was just talking with you just now. And here you are. Listen, if you're a believer, I promise you, if you've given your life to Jesus, you have a father, son or father, daughter relationship with him. Question is, do you have intimacy with him? See, a father, son, father, daughter relationship is based on absolutely nothing that you have done. Other than receive the grace of God, right? Isaac is my son. Noah is my son. They can't do anything about that. Now, if I were to suddenly appear, poof, while Isaac is hitting his brother, hypothetically, of course, he's got no freedom of speech. He stammers. He stutters. Uh, hey, Dad, um, I, was, I was just um, patting Noah on the back. Um, if, as he gets older, he'll probably get more sophisticated. Hey, Dad, I was trying to dislodge a piece of meat. But if I appear suddenly and he's doing just what I asked him to do, he's just going to rattle on about whatever he was up to. Probably talk about trains or monorails or that kind of thing. Listen, I love him either way. But his comfort level depends on what he's doing when I return. Now, right now, he's learning through discipline. As he gets older, I expect him to learn through relationship, right? Because he wants to please his daddy, his Abba. That's what the word Abba means, by the way, in the Greek is daddy. Look at verse 29. If you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, and we do, right? We know. If we're Christians, we know that he is perfectly righteous, completely and perfectly righteous. If you know that he is righteous, then it stands to reason. You know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So phrase one is a given. Phrase two basically says, look, this stands to reason. If phrase one is correct, then phrase two naturally follows. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, it's really important feel like I have to do this quite a bit. It's really important, once again, to remind you to get the order straight in verse 29. Verse 29 is not saying that the righteous get to be born of him. No, verse 29 says, if you are born of him, you will be, as proof, practicing righteousness. Let me put it this way. Practicing righteousness is not the plan of salvation. It's the proof of it. Practicing righteousness is not the root of salvation. It's the fruit of salvation. See, the first thing that happens when you are 
born, or excuse me, the first thing that needs to happen is that you need to be born of him. If you're not born again, there is no way for you to be even considered righteous. Now, if you're born of him, you will instantly, in some ways, begin to resemble him. And here's the thing. You will desire, you'll have this desire in your heart to be more and more like him. Because he's your dad. You'll, you'll begin to, it says, practice righteousness. See, my two sons are born of me, Noah, Isaac. Isaac resembles me. Don't know if you noticed that. Noah resembles me. I go to restaurants and the waitress is like, okay, you're never getting away from saying those are your kids. They're like, really look a lot like me. And I always say, my standard response is, they are handsome, aren't they? (laughs) Then there's this awkward silence. They look just like me or kids. Because they are born of me. But as they grow, they begin to resemble me in other ways. Behaviorally, they begin to resemble me. Noah, even though he has autism, even though he only speaks in two word phrases, he teases. He loves to tease. His favorite phrase with me is, I love my mommy. (laughs) When he's looking straight at me. He teases. Isaac. He resembles me the more, the older and older he gets. He resembles me in the the things that he does, the choices that he makes. Isaac loves music. He resembles me. When he cusses, he resembles mommy. No, just kidding. (laughs) So if you ever hear him cuss, that's it. No, No, that's not true. Um, Actually, I was thinking I should do true confessions here. If you're ever driving in a car with my son Isaac... And he's in the back seat, and you're at a green light, and it turns green, and the guy in front of you doesn't go. You'll hear him say, dude, go. <laughs> he got that from me. <laughs> he resembles me. He, he more and more begins to resemble the image of his father. See, if you're born of God, not only do you, do you resemble him instantly in some ways, but then... To some degree, you want to resemble him more and more. You find yourself practicing righteousness. Look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Okay, Jesus is righteous, right? We've all agreed on that. He always has been righteous, perfectly, flawlessly, blameless. He was the the perfect lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. Okay, He's always been and always will be righteous, but we are practicing righteousness. We are growing into it. Let me give you another example. I'm a musician. Some of you are like, well. (laughs) Look, Isaac can't play the guitar yet, but he practices with a plastic spoon on the coffee table. He can't play the drums yet, but he practices with a couple straws on a plastic cup. Actually, he practices on a real set of drums that my sister-in-law gave to him. Thanks a lot, Michelle. He can't sing harmony yet, but he practices. My fave love 
My Savior lives. My Savior. He even practices preaching. There's a quote on my niece's Facebook page. That's, that's the first quote on her, on her page that's from my son Isaac. She doesn't have any from me. But it says this. That's the Bible. It tells us to obey. That's how you get a happy heart. Oh, he's practicing. Why all of this practicing? Because he's born of me and he wants to be like daddy. So let me ask you a question now. And it might not be the question you expected. I'm not going to ask you, are you righteous like Jesus? Because I already know the answer. But are you practicing? Are you growing into it? Because if you're born of him, you want to be like him. If you're not practicing, if you're not growing even a little bit step by step into his image, why not? Let me put it this way. Practicing, I promise you, will not make you a child of God. But it shows that you are a child of God. Look at chapter 3 now, verse 1. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. You see, the, the focus of all of these verses is the fact that we are called children of God. And just, I want to make sure that I say this here. If you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, I hate to say it, but you're not in this verse yet. Now, you, you can change that today. You can become into the family of God. But he's speaking this whole letter is written specifically to Christians, to those who've given their life to Jesus. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. First word to notice, behold. Y'all, that's a big old word. It's a word filled with awe and wonder. It usually means, wow, look at that. Where do you see that word? Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. Behold, a star shone in the east. Behold, wise men traveled all the way from the east. It's a big word. It means see and perceive, be filled with wonder. Try to consider the magnitude of this. That's the word. Now, what's interesting to me is that when you look at that word in the Greek, it's in the imperative mood. It's a fancy way to say that it is a command. So this is not just, hey, and, and, and when, you, when you first read it, when I first read it, I'm like, okay, John is just kind of taking a step back going, wow, this is cool. It's not just that. No, he's, he's saying, this is awesome, but I'm commanding you to look at it. I'm commanding you to stop and consider the wonder of verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the son, the children of God. He's, t- he's commanding us to take it and to study it, to let it change the way that you see the world, the way that you see yourself. There are people, I'm certain, in this room, well, to, to varying degrees, all of us in this room, but people in this room, that I think it's safe to say you still don't have a clue how much and completely God loves you. You still think that you have to somehow earn it. 
that the way that you'll get him to love you is through grit and determination. Look, the way that this love works is that he first loves us. It's not that we earn it through grit. It's that we return it in gratitude. That's huge. And you've got to really, really get that. That's why he says, behold, consider, perceive, internalize. Try to grab your hands around this. I know you, you won't be able to, but try to understand the love that God has bestowed upon you. And be changed by that. The truth of it. Stop and think about it. Verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Where it says what manner of love. The word in the Greek actually means literally what country or nation or tribe. So a great way to translate this verse is basically this. Behold how foreign... This love is that that the father has bestowed on us that we should be called. And that word called means to be named. So as opposed to, hey, I'm calling you this, even though you're not. No, it means I am naming you one of my sons. I'm naming you my daughter. See, this is adoption he's talking about. Have you guys ever put any thought, thought, real thought into how foreign his love is? I mean, compared to what we're familiar with, our native love. How many are native Floridians? Okay. Wow, there's quite a few, actually. I thought we were all transplants. There are things that maybe are native to you that would be foreign to someone who wasn't brought up here. Palm trees, right? For, I, I first drove into Florida and was like, oh, that's what those things are. He says, behold, how foreign this love is. There are certain loves that we're very familiar with that are very native to us. We love, for instance, when someone is attractive. The Bible has several words for love. Most of you guys know this, right? In, in the English, we have one word for love. I love my wife. I love hot dogs. <laughs> Insulting for my wife. In the Greek, they have four different words. The, the, one of the ones is eros. That's this, which is, look, you love when someone is attracted. Sometimes we love when we have something in common. That's phileo love. It's Philadelphia. Uh, it means brotherly love. When you have something in common with another. Or we love when someone is in our family, when they share the same blood with us. That's a whole different kind of love. It's awesome. So we, we love when people... Um, are lovable to us, right? I don't know if I did. I mention that that's called storge love, that family love. Have you ever put any thought into the fact that God's love is so different than ours? Where we might be drawn to someone's attractiveness on the outside, arrows. You guys, I won't have you raise your hand. You could be considered, there, there's, there's probably one in the room that you might be considered the most attractive person in the room. <laughs> we, we, do, we do have a volunteer. Okay. 
I just don't want to, I'm, I suppose that if we took a vote, you know, a secret ballot, I'm sure. It's like, okay, that person has the, is the most attractive on the outside. Have you taken any thought into the fact that God sees you on the inside? So that means the most beautiful person in the room, God sees you full of jealousy or pride or anger or whatever ugly thing is inside of you. And he says, but I love you. You ever thought of the fact that sometimes we're drawn to people who we have things in common with, right? Phileo love. Love of fishing or music or just the same kind of bad pun humor. Okay, you're, you're my friends. We have this love for people that we, that we just kind of click with or have things in common with. Have you ever thought about the fact that God is holy and he looks at you and says, I got nothing in common with you. He lives in holiness. You have nothing in common with him. I mean, he, he saw you when you lost it. He saw you when you were impatient, when you were selfish, when you were looking at pornography, when you were getting high. All of the things that you are ashamed of now. He's seen you do every single one of those things. And he says, I love you. We can sort of imagine a family kind of love, right? Like. Your, your, your family may really hurt you and, and make life difficult for you, but you still love them. That's, that's an even more noble kind of love. Have you ever thought about the fact that God looks at you and says, from your fallen state that is, and says, You're, you were born of the enemy. Born into the enemy's camp. And yet God says, I love you. Imagine this kind of love, someone loving someone who is unattractive, unlovable, unbelieving. If you're an unbeliever here today, he looks at you and says, I love you. Unattractive, unlovable, unbelievable, unbelieving, ungrateful. Imagine someone who blows it every single time, it seems. Okay, that's me. To, to put... Some thought into it. Imagine you drive on your way home to church from church today. You drive by a homeless man or woman. Completely unattractive physically. And you look at them and you also notice you've got nothing in common. And he's certainly not in your family. Imagine, some of us could imagine, tossing a few bucks or maybe better yet, taking them out to eat or, or providing some food for them. Imagine that you invite him into your home. Okay, now it's starting to get foreign. Foreign kind of love. What if instead of just inviting him into your home, you decided to adopt him? To be responsible for whatever he does, whatever he says, the choices that he makes for the rest of your life. Okay, that's really foreign. What if, for whatever reason, the circumstances were such that to adopt him, you, it required that you gave up everything that was dear to you? That's a foreign kind of love. 
Romans 5, verse 6, for when we were still without strength, when we had nothing, absolutely nothing to offer, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, those who were completely unlike him. And then Romans 5, verse 7 kind of encapsulates to me this idea of, okay, I'm trying to grasp this kind of love. Listen to Romans 5, verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Basically saying, okay, I can sort of understand if there was a really good man, it would be courageous to to die for them. Um, But then he says, verse 8, Romans 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, his own kind of love, foreign, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be named, adopted children of God. How foreign is that kind of love. It's really important to know because if you are thinking that you're going to get into heaven based on the loves that you're familiar with and that you're native to, it's not going to happen. Have you thought lately about what kind of foreign love could make a holy God choose a sinner like you to be called his child, to make us children of the king? Galatians 4, verse 3, even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, the same circumstances, the same flesh and blood that we have to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. Listen, crying out, Abba, Father, Daddy. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Spend any time thinking about the fact that you've been adopted from slavery into royalty. I don't know about you, but when I consider that, I want to live up to the royal name. I want to, as my son does, I want to practice being more and more like him. Of course, that creates a problem. Look at the end of verse 1. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. When you finally get it, when you finally understand how much he loves you and you want to just return that love because you're so awestruck by it. When you desire to be more and more like Jesus, you talk about Jesus. You think about him. You even talk to this invisible friend of yours. Cuckoo. You pray to him. You even ask other people, how can I pray to you, to my, to my invisible God? How can I pray for you? They're like, oh, okay. I mean, and you say that you actually hear from him. Well, yeah, I hear from him in, in the word. When, when I read the word, it jumps out at me and I, and I hear what he's saying. Okay. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. You guys recently or especially when when you were first saved, you guys remember that that experience when you go to your friends, you tell them about what's happened with you and they're like, who are you and what have you done with my friend? Right? They, they don't get you. They don't like the new you. 
And here's why. Because there's something foreign about you. There's something out there, otherworldly, about you. Listen, that's a good thing. It's exactly the truth. There is something now otherworldly about you. Something foreign. Don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. John fifteen eighteen. Jesus spoke. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world with this foreign love to take you to a foreign land. Therefore, the world hates you. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Let me ask you, if you're looking for applications, and that's what we do here at the Calvary Chapel. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you got the eye roll? Jesus freak. When was the last time the world gave you that puzzled look like, I I don't get you. If it was a while back, is that because there's probably a few different possibilities. One, you're you're not living in the world because Jesus says we're supposed to live in the world but not be of it. You've... insulated, isolated yourself, or the opposite, that you've gone into the world and become of the world, and you're not resembling Jesus enough to where they go, okay, what's what's your deal? And here's, again, to balance it out. If it was just yesterday that you got that eye roll, here's a question to ask yourself. Is it because you're truly resembling him or because you're weird or rude? Right. Verse two, he says, beloved, now we are children of God. Let me ask you real quick again, just to to make sure that we we do this regularly. This this book was written to believers, but there's all sorts of little things in here for unbelievers. If you came in here this morning as an unbeliever, I hope that you you have felt and that you feel um, honored and respected. But I. I intend to, as the scriptures uh, desire for us to be, to be real with you and to tell you the truth. Look at verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. Just that, that is not universal. That doesn't mean that everybody in this room is a child of God. Yes, you've been created by him. But this very thing that we're talking about is a transaction. It's an adoption. But... If you have not taken advantage of this foreign love for you, you can do that today. There is no reason, not one sin that you've committed, no reason that you cannot be adopted into his family today. Okay, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. See, you can know for certain whether you are a child of God today. You should know whether or not you are a child of God today. But here's the deal. The future between today and when you see Jesus, that's where it gets a little bit murky, a little cloudy, meaning you have no idea what trials you're going to face, what victories you'll enjoy, what defeats you will suffer, what smart decisions you'll make, what dumb decisions you'll make. If you've given your life to Jesus, you know that you are a child of God, but your earthly future is still a little murky but your eternal future though is secure because he says but we know that when he is revealed we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is that reminds me 
instantly of 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. You can write it down. Check me out if you like. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Reminds me of a mirror because of 1 Corinthians 13. Those of you who've been students of the Word, you remember that mirrors back then were not anywhere near as clear as the mirrors that we have today. Right? You go in the bathroom and you will see a fairly decent representation of yourself, right? Sorry about that. Um, but back then, the mirrors were made of burnished brass, right? They would shine up the, the brass as best they could. The best way I can think of to help you understand how different it was, look at yourself in the back of a spoon, right? It's like, okay, I can tell it's me. It's wearing the same shirt that I am, but its head sure is funky. You're like, Oh, sorry. It's real. Um, it's it's a warped. It's a disfigured. Think of a funhouse mirror, right? I always want to go to the ones that make you look skinny. Um, where you never really quite get the, the complete picture, but you can tell that it's you. First Corinthians thirteen eleven says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. Interesting, again, all of the, the concepts of children and being moving on into uh, maturity. But when I became a man, I put away childish things, for now we see in a mirror that is dimly, not quite clear, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Interesting that the word declares itself that it is our mirror, right? We, we look at it and we see Jesus in the mirror. We see him in the book, but we compare ourselves and even to the fuzzy image of Jesus that's in the word. And, and the, the, the word is the best mirror that we've got on this side of, of uh, heaven. But even compared to that fuzzy image, we don't come anywhere close. But do you guys see that what verse uh, two is saying and it's backed up by other scriptures that there's coming a moment, the twinkling of an eye, when he will return. And you'll be seeing him face to face. Now, I have some really good news for you. The Bible says that when he returns in that blink of an eye, not only will you see him face to face, but it says what? You will be like him. The blinking of an eye, I learned this week that it's like one fifty-fifth of a second. That quick. Face to face with him. But it doesn't say you will be filled with sin or wrestling with this thing that you were hoping not to have been caught. It says... When you're face to face with him, you will be like him. That means no more sin. No more sickness. Y'all, no more autism. No more cancer. No more pink slips. No more divorce. No more drugs. No more heartache. All of the junk 
will be gone. And only the masterpiece will remain as you see him face to face. Verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it is not yet revealed what we shall be between now and then. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I don't have this in my notes, but real quick. I think we can be more and more like him. It says, as we see him, we become more like him, right? How much do you see of him in the word now? See, that's the goal, right? It's, it's going to pale by comparison with that moment when we're completely changed. But we should be continually looking in this mirror to be more and more like him. Because the more we see of him as he truly is, the more we become conformed into his image. Now, doesn't that make you, I hope, I hope that makes you want to live up to the royal name. Not because you're afraid you're going to get caught, but because he's so amazing. With his love. It's so foreign. It's that foreign love that will deliver us through to the end. It's not our works. It's not the things that we do. And look, this is the natural, once again, the natural fruit of that truth. Look at verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Just as who is pure? Jesus just like the, the back at verse 28, right? Jesus is righteous, so we will practice righteousness. Jesus is pure as we understand it, as we wrestle with it, as we are amazed by his love. We want to practice purity. It's like we look in the mirror and we see more and more of Jesus. And we want to be more and more like him. Everyone who has hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. James uh, 122 says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. It says it's not too smart to look in the mirror, see how much work there is to be done and then go, OK, I'm good. Right. Let me let me close with this illustration. I've been using Isaac as an illustration quite a bit this morning. I have one more. I don't know if any of you other dads have experienced this, but I think I even remember this when I was a kid. Any of your your sons have a fascination with watching you shave? Isaac does. He looks up in the mirror. I don't even think he can see himself because he's shorter than the cabinet. He looks up in the mirror and he sees daddy. And he talks about being a daddy someday. Just yesterday, he's like, when I'm a daddy like you, when I'm 45, I'm like, how do you know how old I am? <laughs> Seems to be obsessed with being like daddy. And occasionally, I will even see him grab a razor with a cover on it, okay? And he'll start to shave. He wants to do, he looks in the mirror, he wants to be like daddy. It's just natural because he's one of my kids. And I promise you, I have never, never will say to him, unless you learn to shave, you will be not be one of my kids. No, it's the hope in him that gets him to change. Look in the mirror and want to change. Does that make any sense? Thinking someday in the future, I'm going to be just like my daddy. And I want to do everything I can now to be more and more like him. Let's pray.
Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your goodness. Thank you for your ability, Lord, to speak to us. Lord, you know every heart in the room. You know exactly what we need to hear, Lord. And if it hasn't happened yet, I pray, Lord, that, um, again, we, we give you complete control and ask that you would uh, speak to each heart, Lord. Speak to each one of us and help us to respond, Lord, in a way that would be pleasing to you. We cry out, Abba, Father. We love you and ask and that you would uh, guide and direct us here in these next few moments. To your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.